0: Founded concerns about climate change? Do the Trudeau liberals see nuclear energy as a partial solution to climate change? How are international agreements like the Canada China FIPA and the planned North American Collaboration Agreement on Energy and Climate Change likely to impact public policy in Saskatchewan and other Canadian jurisdictions? Are non nuclear alternatives to fossil fuels feasible? What are the hazards associated with the joint plan among the three North American countries to address climate change and energy security? On this week's Global Research News Hour, on the occasion of the meeting of Canadian federal and provincial leaders in Vancouver to work out an agreement on a national climate change plan, we explore the implications of proposed climate solutions for the future of Canada's nuclear industry, environment and energy security. We'll be joined by anti-nuclear activist Candace Paul of the Committee for Future Generations and by political economist, professor and author Gordon Laxer. On today's program, Nuclear Alternatives and North American Security, False Canadian Solutions to the Climate Crisis. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 4th, 2016. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on Treaty 1 territory in the heart of the Métis Nation. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Faced with the denunciation that the weapons provided by Italy are used by Saudi and Kuwaiti air forces for the massacre of civilians in Yemen, Minister Pinotti replies quote, Let us not transform the states that are our allies in the battle against Daesh into enemies. This would be a very serious mistake." This would be especially a mistake to allow it to be known who are our allies Saudi and Kuwaiti. Absolute monarchies, where power is concentrated in the hands of the ruler and his family circle, where parties and trade unions are banned, where immigrant workers, 10 million in Saudi Arabia, about half of the labor force, 2 million to 2.9 million people in Kuwait, live in conditions of exploitation and slavery, where those who call for the most basic human rights are hanged or beheaded. In these hands, democratic Italy places bombers capable of carrying nuclear bombs, knowing that Saudi Arabia already has them and that they can also be used by Kuwait. That comes from the article, Nuclear Red Alert, Saudi Fight Bombers Equipped with Nuclear Warheads by Manlio Dinucci, posted March 2nd, originally appearing in Il Manifesto. If Saudi Arabia cannot even win on the battlefield in neighboring Yemen, with fighting even spilling over the border into Saudi territory, it is unlikely it will do any better against the battle-hardened, better organized and better equipped forces of the Syrian Arab Army, let alone Russia's presence in the country. Clearly. Saudi Arabia's phantom military exercises and posturing are cover for something else. It is likely that anything that goes over the border into Syria under the Saudi flag will be anything other than actual Saudi forces. Remember those Al-Qaeda and IS supply lines mentioned earlier? What if the fighters and equipment pouring into Syria simply changed their black flags to Saudi Arabia's? That comes from the article, Saudi Arabia Threatens Military Intervention to Remove Bashar al-Assad, Northern's Thunder Military Exercise, by Olsen Gunnar, posted March 2nd, originally appearing at New Eastern Outlook. It is hard to believe only four senators opposed the confirmation of Robert Califf, who was approved today as the next FDA commissioner. Califf Chancellor of Clinical and Translational Research at Duke University, until recently, received money from 23 drug companies, including the giants like Johnson & Johnson, Lilly, Merck, Shearing Plough, and GSK, according to a disclosure statement on the website of Duke Clinic Research Institute. Not merely receiving research funds, Califf also served as a high-level pharma officer, says Press Reports, Medscape, the medical website discloses that Caliph quote, served as a director, officer, partner, employee, advisor, consultant, or trustee for Genentech, unquote. Portola Pharmaceuticals says Califf served on its board of directors until leaving for the FDA. That comes from the article, the FDA now officially belongs to Big Pharma. Robert Califf's ties to Big Pharma run deep and the Obama nominee just sailed through the U.S. Senate by Martha Rosenberg, posted March 2nd, originally appearing at Alternet. Bush and Cheney launched two disastrous and totally unnecessary wars which increased terrorism and undermined America's standing in the eyes of the world. Hillary Clinton is at least as bad. She is largely responsible for the war in Syria, which is plunging the Middle East and Europe into chaos. The New York Times confirms that Clinton is responsible for the violent regime change in Libya, which was also completely unnecessary. Hillary is largely responsible for the bombing of Yugoslavia, another wholly unnecessary war. That comes from the article, Hillary Clinton, a bigger warmonger than Bush Cheney, by Washington's blog, posted March 2nd. Political, federal and provincial leaders have concluded a meeting in which a framework for containing the country's greenhouse gas emissions could be arrived at. The Vancouver Declaration on Clean Growth and Climate Change arrived at March 3rd, contains, among other aspirational goals, commitments to embrace a low-carbon economy, including carbon pricing mechanisms, investments in so-called green infrastructure, public transit infrastructure, and energy-efficient social infrastructure, and investments in so-called clean energy technology. On this last point, the term clean technology is inclusive of, but not restricted to, renewable energy. In fact, the document specifically mentions Canada's commitment to mission innovation championed by none other than Bill Gates at the COP21 talks in Paris last year. This is notable because Mission Innovation considers nuclear fission to be a clean technology. With Canada having the second largest reserves of uranium in the world, all from mines in northern Saskatchewan, the Global Research News Hour decided to speak with a former guest and prominent critic of the nuclear industry in Canada, to gauge her understanding of Canada's nuclear strategy and its possible role in a low-carbon future for the nation. Joining us now from English River, Saskatchewan, is Candice Paul. She's lived in northern Saskatchewan for nearly 30 years and married into the community. She's been an active member of the Committee, committee for Future Generations uh, and their campaign to raise awareness of the real risks of nu- a nuclear waste repository proposed in northern Saskatchewan communities. Uh, Candice Paul, welcome. Thank you. Now, when I interviewed you back in 2013, you were telling me about the campaign to stop these nuclear waste repositories, and... Um, in uh, your community and uh, other communities. And about a year ago, I believe it was almost exactly a year ago, it was announced that the plan to dump nuclear waste in those targeted areas had been scrapped. So I guess I have to ask, what is uh, the focus of your group these days?
1: These days our focus is on a couple of things. We have two directions. One direction is to build up in our province a sustainable type of economy, um, especially in the north, where it was really resource-based, and in northern Saskatchewan it's nearly all uranium-based. And then there's the uranium issues and uranium mining and exploration issues that we've been dealing with since um, we were successful in getting nuclear waste management organization out of Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm.
0: I I have a there was a recent speech given by the uh, parliamentary secretary to the minister of natural resources, uh, Kim Rudd. Uh, it was given uh, just a few days ago, February twenty fifth, uh, at the Canada Canadian Nuclear Association's annual conference and trade show. And uh, I got a couple of quotes that I, I'd like you to respond to. Sure. Uh, said Canada's 2015 uranium production will offset between approximately 300 and 500 million tons of carbon dioxide emissions by fueling nuclear power in Canada and worldwide. That's comparable to emissions from an equivalent amount of electricity produced using natural gas or coal. And uh, you're you just mentioning the Nuclear Waste Management Organization Enumo, and NUMO, uh, and and uh, the the secretary said. Quote, the NUMO's voluntary consent-based approach is world-class and is being closely followed by other countries to deal with their nuclear waste. And the NUMO is another good example of the nuclear industry's commitment to indigenous communities through its early and continued engagement with them. So, yeah, what, what are your thoughts?
1: A, no. <laughs> <laughs> Why the focus on Aboriginal and indigenous communities? because they intend to dump uh, nuclear waste in our territories. So whether it's in Saskatchewan or right now, the only places being considered are in Ontario. It's all on Indigenous territory. And they haven't taken no for an answer yet. The only actual uh, Indigenous community that were interested were Pine House, the Métis community of Pine House, and the First Nation community of English River. Both were in Saskatchewan. In Ontario, they all have said no consistently since 2009. So they're looking in non-Aboriginal communities to get consent to build repositories on First Nations lands. That's what they're doing in Ontario. Um, they think they're doing a good job. But what they're doing is really disrupting communities. They're they're not listening. When we say no, they don't understand what that means. They just think we don't understand what they're trying to do. But we do understand what they're trying to do. That's what we did when um, they were here. We did as much research as possible we learned as much as possible and what we saw and what they eventually ended up admitting is that they don't actually have the technology in hand to deal with the waste and they won't have it for some time so looking for a place to deposit it now is premature
2: hmm.
0: when you when they uh, they talk about uh... With, with this engagement of Indigenous communities. I mean, you, I, I, as I understand it, in the, in the community where you live, there, uh, the, the, the band had uh, essentially, uh, there, there was essentially political pressure, both on the band and on yourself and anyone, anyone else who was outspoken. Right. Against it. You want to talk about what uh, you experienced.
1: Well, for us, it ended up being that our jobs were on the line when we said no to nuclear uh, development and nuclear waste. And so there's this, you know, silencing. If you don't cooperate, then you might not get a job, you know. Uh, They used this as an example so that others wouldn't speak out. But it didn't really help because we kept speaking out and we made our point. And every time that Nuclear Waste Management Organization came in, we tried to be there so that we could ascertain what they were saying, analyze their information, and nine times out of ten, pure logic just knocked it off. It it wasn't sound information that they were giving people. It was just a big sell. Mm-hmm. So, like, eventually they had to admit, yes, it will It will uh, contaminate aquifers, and that's a huge concern. And they wouldn't have told people that if we hadn't been there to question those things. So the pressure is, you know, if you stay silent, you're not going to actually serve your future generations very well because they're the ones who are going to have to live with those effects. They're the ones who are going to have to understand that you didn't stand up. You didn't question this. Mm. And to us, it was not... It's our duty. It's our duty to do that. That's part of our, our our First Nations values. And we can't set those aside. And in the case of nuclear, it's 7,000 generations, not just seven generations ahead that we have to look after.
0: Mm-hmm. Um so I guess uh, just this uh following up on the thought about these are exclusively indigenous communities that are becoming uh uh homes for this uh waste that will be around uh, for uh, probably beyond the the lifespan of the human species um what uh, what have you heard about uh, rationale for transporting all of this material um to these indigenous communities for
1: well, I asked a question when they were NUMO was here and did an open house, and they demonstrated how they were going to um, store it and how they were going to transport it. And I asked them why. The way they would go through all of the expense and all of the um, risk of transporting it. And they said, because the people of Toronto don't feel safe. So there are risks to transporting it that that was becoming clear and there was there are risks to storing it that is extremely clear and that's not what they're really promoting to the people. They just try to give you assurances that everything will be looked after and you won't get exposed and but they they can't they can't clearly guarantee that you won't get any exposure. Tried to nail them on that several times. And uh, they won't. They won't guarantee
2: it.
0: Candice Paul, I know that there's a, a lot within the the province of Saskatchewan. Certainly, the the, the nuclear industry and uh, uh, entities like Cameco have a seem to have a lot of clout and uh, sure. within uh, you know, government and uh, even uh, university circles. And mm-hmm. so, I- I'm wondering if you're you know you you could talk about how uh, that that influence maybe give a maybe a specific example of how that influence is is distorting the politics uh not just within your local community but within the the entire province
1: well the premier of Saskatchewan Brad Wall back a couple of years ago had stated point blank that aboriginal peoples in Saskatchewan which northern Saskatchewan is basically 90% Aboriginal peoples um, don't need any programs; they just need chemical. And so, chemical is in our schools. I've had in in the local school here, the the uh, teacher that's supposed to be teaching Native studies is telling the students, "Well, you know, I don't believe in testing and, and, and grading, so you guys just need to get." through this class and and so you can get a good job at, at the mines. Mm-hmm. There's that sort of influence there. And they don't want anybody else to come in and talk about, you know, the actual real risks that are being forced upon the people. Um, within our own community, uh, our band signed a collaboration agreement with uh, Cameco and Areva on the Millennium Mine Project, which since got shelved. And basically, the influence was, well, you know, our deal is better for you than your treaty is. And and they used that kind of, um, I don't know, sales pitch to undermine a land claim that the band had. Because if we had actually been successful with that land claim, all of the resources beneath that land that would have become reserves would have belonged to the First Nation. Cameco and Arriva wanted those resources, and they don't pay a whole lot in royalties to the province. So there's no way they wanted to risk the First Nation having that sort of power over the resource that they want access to. Um, During the fires,
0: Last summer's fires. Last
1: summer's fires. Uh, we had some concerns with, um, you know, if those areas around mines and former mines uh, become engulfed in flames, all of the ash coming from those areas would be radioactive. And they have enough influence to make sure that, you know, all the sites, the Facebook sites and so forth, are monitored and so forth. And very next day... In the paper, they're stating that there's no way that any of those ash from the north could have been radioactive because it's not burning around the mines. Well, we later in the summer, after the fires had passed, went up to the former Cloth Lake mine area, and it's all burnt. It was engulfed in flames. Mm. So, you know, they're manipulating the information that the public get. They want it to be all happy glory. They have ties to the football team and the cancer research, and they influence the health regions. They have a partnership with the health regions, northern health regions in Saskatchewan, so, like, they donate money for studies. When we asked for a, you know, study on why our people in the north are getting so many cancers and so many diseases, um the Northern Medical Health Officer told the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, we don't need a study like that. They asked him what kind of study we need, and he said a wellness study. So they gave him money for a wellness study. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and it was a really lame wellness study because there's so many factors involved in well-being up here, including the residential school Yeah,
0: it's more, than, more than vitamins and meditation,
1: right? <laughs> right. You know, so, and then we've got, you know, all Another epidemic, basically, of cancers and other diseases that, you know, our communities are dying from. So we've got a lot of collective grief going on.
0: Candice Paul, could you talk to the... Uh, I know that there was an, an agreement uh, signed uh, between Canada and India yeah. on, uh, on nuclear. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could speak to that or, or other nuclear partnerships that... Uh, have been signed or are on the horizon?
1: Well, there was two agreements, one with China and one with India. The China one was signed previously, and that came with the FIPA agreement. And one of the things that came with it the day after it was signed, the the Chinese ambassador in Saskatchewan at a press conference with the premier stated that they want Mandarin taught in all the primary schools now, and they want ten big projects out of Saskatchewan. Recently, China just bought into an uh, exploration company called Fission Uranium, which has been exploring north of uh, the Lush in northwestern Saskatchewan, where, they've discuss- where there has been a, a large, high-grade uranium deposit discovered, and they've bought 20% of that company. So, you know, China is having a great influence on what what is being demanded here, so the more, you know, difficult it's going to become for us to protect our lands. And in 2009, they had the uh, Uranium Development Partnership hearings, and over 80% of the people said no to nuclear waste storage, no to uh, nuclear reactors in Saskatchewan. But the government had... uh, just kind of ignored that and shoved it on the table. In the meantime, they're still working towards trying to, uh, they're really pushing hard now to develop small nuclear actors and become like the research capital of, you know, the nuclear world. Um, They've got the Sylvia Fedorik uh, Canadian Center for Nuclear Innovation and the U of S in Saskatoon which is a big PR campaign for them. We've noted over the last year there's a huge um, public relations campaign going on with the nuclear industry, not just in Canada, but worldwide. And recently at the uh, COP21 um, thing, uh, event in Paris. in Paris, there was a huge nuclear lobby there. So what they've been doing is touting themselves, greenwashing themselves to look like they are the answer to climate change. Yet every single project that is underway right now for nuclear reactors anywhere in the world are all going over budget. There's huge concerns with the designs, uh, the safety risks involved in those designs. We haven't got time with the world's climate, the way it's going, to wait for them to come across, for one thing. But the one thing they're really overlooking and over-glossing is the fact that they, too, pollute. And there's also the very uh, new research on the effects of krypton. That's a radioactive... uh, Krypton-85, I think. It's a radioactive uh, substance that is also depleting the ozone. So, you know, it's not the big, clean industry, the answer in the be-all to climate change. Not only that, all of these things, all of these reactors create heat and warm up water and release hot water into lakes and and water systems. Tritiated water, actually, they pollute it. So... You know they're not they're not being honest about what what they're doing they're just taking advantage of the fact that the fossil fuel industry is is taking a hate for climate change
0: I mentioned earlier a, a quote uh, in which the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Natural Resources was talking about uh, how uranium production was offsetting large amounts of uh, carbon dioxide emissions uh, by Fueling nuclear power, so I'm wondering if you see if if you have any strong convictions that, uh, notwithstanding what you just said earlier, that uh, they they do see nuclear power as a, a part of the uh, the strategy for reducing our our emissions.
1: Yeah, well, nuclear power is hugely subsidized, and will have to continue to be hugely subsidized to look after the waste. So yeah, the liberal government is pro-nuclear. They are going to agree and follow along with what the campaign has been. Um, Which is unfortunate. Uh, It takes away the possibilities of actually having real sustainable development and the money going towards solar and geothermal and, and, and new wind innovations. It's they're believing the line that solar and the um uh, those kind of things can't meet um what they call the uh the peak uh requirement for e- energy. But they're also not even mentioning any conservation efforts. And that that's a, a, a big problem. It's uh Basically, what it is, is continuum of business as usual. They're in the many, the business of making money. And that's, that's where they're seeing it, the only place left to do it.
0: Hmm. So I'm wondering, after your years of involvement on these uh, campaigns, if, if you would have any advice to our listeners about how to best go about keeping not only the oil, but the uranium in the ground?
1: Um, really push hard for other alternatives. Start doing it. Don't wait for the government to do it. If you can possibly do it yourselves, work together as communities, com- build your communities towards that sustainability, then there won't be a need for it. Um, that's, that's kind of what we have to do, is take the bull by the horns as people. And show them that we don't need that.
0: Okay, Candace Paul, thank you very much for uh, sharing that uh, those thoughts with us today.
1: Okay, you're welcome.
0: We've been speaking with Candace Paul, uh, based in English River First Nation, and an active member of the Committee for Future Generations. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at PRN.FM. We are also podcast on the website GlobalResearch.ca. joined right now by gordon laxer he is the author of the recent book after the sands energy and Ecolo- ecological security for canadians published by douglas and mcintyre he is the founding director and former head of parkland institute at the university of alberta in edmonton a political economist and professor emeritus at the university of alberta so thank you for very much for joining us uh, professor laxer
2: very nice to be here
0: Okay, so first of all, if you could just go through uh, maybe uh, some points that you make in your recent book, um, we've heard a lot about uh, the uh, about energy and uh, the the importance of of shifting uh, our uh, away from fossil fuels to renewables. Uh, that that was the the focus of the uh, what they call the Leap Manifesto, and. I'm wondering if you could comment on uh, just, uh, first of all, like how, in terms of, you know, how viable it is, uh, given the the, the dependence that uh, Canadians seem to have right now on uh, fossil fuel energy, uh, both economically and, uh, you know, just in terms of our our basic needs as a cold northern country.
2: Mm hmm. Well, we absolutely must take action on uh, climate change. It's a, it's a disaster that's coming, and um, our leaders, including the prime minister and the premiers, all went to Paris, and they made huge, lofty promises that they were going to keep, the, help keep the world down to uh, um, not more a uh, temperature rising not more than two degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial level, and even talked about a 1.5 degree. Uh, uh rise keeping it below uh, to that level and that's very difficult because the world's already risen uh global temperatures risen 1 degree celsius so we're only talking about another 0.5 which would have devastating effects but with the the promises are there's such a yawning gap between the promises our leaders have made in paris and what they're going to deliver and that's what i'm really concerned about um the um uh, trudeau government has talked about and in, in the election campaign they were going to do much more in the environment than the harper government and but they they still went to paris uh with the harper's um targets uh that he uh, submitted um last may and those targets are really pathetic and we're not even likely to, uh, very unlikely to even meet those targets. Now, let me say the targets are that, that Canada is supposed to reduce its total emissions by 30 percent over the 2005 level by 2030 in, in 14 years. But that is not quite as, as a, a bigger reduction as Chrétien made in 1997 in the Kyoto Agreement. Because that was an agreement to cut emissions by six percent from the 1990 level, and of course, that didn't happen. Um, and that was supposed to be cut by 2012, four years ago. Instead, they were up 25 percent, uh, and the forecast of the National Energy Board is that they're going to increase. Um, and the uh, Trudeau has said uh, yesterday that we can have our pipelines and we can have wind turbines at the same time. That is absolutely wrong. The um, Canada's biggest source of emissions are in the production of oil and gas. Is more than its use in trucks and autos and transportation in Canada, and we're doing this mainly for exports. Um, And those, uh, if um, uh, Canada will meet even those incredibly inadequate Harper targets by 2030, the, uh, the increase in oil, uh, sands, and uh, natural gas production will take up, instead of 25% of Canada's total emissions by 2030, they'll take up close to half of those emissions if we continue to let those the production grow um, of oil and gas. So what we really have to do is we have to cap um, production from the sands and phase it out, and we have to get off being a carbon-fuel-exporting uh, economy and move in a different direction. Now, you talk about our dependence on uh, resources, on energy. Well, uh, Canada has uh, it has 18 million workers. Only 355,000, 2%, work in a... a, a, a a category that is broader than energy, forestry, fishing, mining, oil, and gas. That's 2% of all Canadians work in those sectors. And it's interesting that last year, in 2015, um, Canada created more net jobs. In 2015, this is the year of the great oil price crash, than it did in the previous two years. So Canada has a much broader economy than just uh, digging up resources and sending them out and we have to get off that kind of mentality we have to move to in moving to a low carbon future which is what the prime minister and the premiers promised in paris
0: but when you say to the the people in the province of alberta where you've seen a lot of job losses and a, a lot of uh, you know, significant economic disruption uh, in in people's lives i mean what uh, yes of course what, what <laughs> options do they have
2: well, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's devastating when anybody loses their jobs. It's, uh, it disrupts the family, it's incredible stress, people have to move. It, it, it's terrible. In Alberta, uh, in 2015, lost a net of just under 20,000 jobs. So this is out of uh, 2.3 million jobs uh, in Alberta, 19,600 jobs were lost net. Now, uh, 44,000 of those were full-time jobs, so that's, um, you know, less than 1% of all jobs and 2% of all full-time jobs. Um, now, what happens is for the last 20 years, Alberta has sucked in a lot of workers from other parts of the country and moved to Alberta because of uh, the the oil industry there. And what has been happening in the last year is that those moving trucks have reversed people are moving back to their home provinces, it's important that those workers who were laid off in Alberta have gainful employment, and we should think of this as the start of moving to a low-carbon society. So what we have to realize is that a unit of carbon saved rather than one uh, um, dug up, um, produced, and emitted Produces more jobs than does uh, um, th- does the carbon fuel industry, and this is how you do it: is is you in in Alberta you could build and should build a high speed train between Calgary and Edmonton, um, more LRT in the cities, um, uh, district heating, retrofitting all buildings in Alberta so that they're they're highly insulated. And half the jobs layoffs in Alberta have been in construction, rather than directly in energy, because the the sands, the Alberta sands, is a huge construction project. So, if you offered those same workers jobs and all of those things uh, that I just mentioned, uh, they would be workers would be closer to their home. They wouldn't have to commute to Fort McMurray, and they would be be uh, moving us. To the low carbon future that we need to go to.
0: Mm. Now, on the topic, uh, uh, in terms of like just you know energy security, I mean, you point out in your book that uh, Canada has no strategic reserves, whereas the United States does have strategic reserves, and we're also bound by treaties like NAFTA, which uh, would compel us to continue uh, sending uh, you know whatever energy we've been sending south of the border uh, to to continue sending it. Um, uh, in the same proportion as uh, what we have been sending over the last uh, few years, so I- I'm wondering what uh, y- you see on the horizon in terms of um, you know changing that landscape, securing Canadian uh, energy security uh, yeah. in the face of those sorts of challenges.
2: Yeah, it's it's very important. I mean, Canada. Well, Is in NAFTA, three countries in NAFTA, and we are, uh, subject to this proportionality clause which says that Canada must, uh, uh, export the same percentage of its energy as it has to the United States, uh, as it has in the last three years. It doesn't apply to anybody, uh, any of the other, the other countries because Mexico said we're not going to do that, so they got an exemption. Doesn't really apply to the United States either because the United States is a net importer of energy, is not mainly an exporter of energy. It does it does export some amount of energy, even to Canada, but it's but it's very minuscule. It's, the United States is going to, even with the, the shale boom and fracking boom in the United States, the United States is going to continue to import oil by between a quarter and a third of its oil needs between now and 2035. So it only applies to Canada. So... The insane thing is that we um, export all of this oil in Western Canada, and even Newfoundland exports it, and we import oil in the East. So um, the uh, things are changing in terms of imports, but actually imports, I just saw a report today, have increased. They're somewhere between 30 and 40% of all the oil Canadians use are based on imports. Now, that has, for a, until a few years ago, that was especially OPEC oil and Middle Eastern oil, um, that has now shifted to a majority American oil. Now, people may think, oh, well, that's good, because if it's American oil, then that's a secure supply. Well, think again. Uh, I, uh, I spoke a few years ago to Matthew Simmons. Who was a, a Texas, um, uh, a banker for the oil industry, and a, an advisor to George W. Bush? He said, "As soon as there's an oil shortage in the world, the United States is going to cut off sending any oil to the United to Canada." Um, and now you may think, "Well, why are we talking about shortages? Uh, the world has got a glut of oil, is cheap oil." Just think of the Middle East. The Middle East. Is a powder keg. You get uh, Saudi Arabia on one side of the conflicts throughout the uh, Isla- Islamic world and, and, and Iran on the other. They've even talked about war between each other. They've got proxies in Yemen. If they went to war with each other, you would have an international oil shortage, and Canada and every other country would be incredibly impacted. And the, the Canadians in Quebec and, and Atlantic Canada, even Ontario, would be impacted by the fact that we don't have a secure supply. We don't have strategic petroleum reserves. Uh, we belong to, to the International Energy um, Agency, which is the the rich uh, countries, mainly importing countries. Only uh, Canada and Australia, amongst those 28 countries, don't have strategic petroleum reserves, and it's insane. We need those. Um, all the European Union countries have, and the United States has the biggest one. China is, is, uh, quickly buying up oil when it, now that it, the, the price is cheap to fill its strategic, uh, reserves because they know that we're going into, uh, another, uh, oil shortage. The, the low, what the low prices are doing, and it's taking longer than people expected, but it's starting to shut down, uh, future production of oil. And so, what happens with that is that uh, that's going to mean that there isn't going to be the the future supplies coming on, and in a few years we'll be back to a shortage. The history of oil in the last 150 years is this shunting back and forth between a surplus and a shortage. And we're going to go through it again.
0: Three weeks previous to the first minister's meeting on a climate strategy, another agreement was arrived at between energy ministers from the United States, Canada, and Mexico in the city of Winnipeg, Manitoba. This agreement was framed as a collaboration on climate change and energy among the three North American governments. Jim Carr is Canada's natural resources minister. Here's part of what he said about the agreement at the February 12th press conference, which announced it.
3: That's why we are happy to announce that, as of today, all of our North American energy data and energy maps are gathered on one platform for the first time. This is significant because it allows us to think about continental energy integration in a new light. We are also going to do that through the new Mission Innovation Partnership, which was announced at the climate change talks in Paris. For those who don't know, Mission Innovation brings our three countries together with 17 other nations and some of the world's best-known entrepreneurs, including Bill Gates and Richard Branson, to promote clean technology like never before. The goal is to double government investment in clean energy research and development and to spur private sector investments in clean technology over the next five years. This is a great opportunity to reinvigorate energy innovation and accelerate transformative clean energy technology solutions. Mission innovation also promotes greater global cooperation, and that's something that Secretary Moniz, Secretary Joaquin Coldwell, and I have just demonstrated here with our signing of a Memorandum of Understanding on Climate Change and Energy Collaboration. This memorandum takes the important strides we've made in recent years towards a continental approach to energy and expands our relationship in support of an even more ambitious clean energy and environmental agreements. This is important to me personally because it delivers on our government's promise and my mandate, which includes ensuring the energy sector remains the source of jobs, prosperity, and opportunity. In a world that increasingly values sustainable practices and low-carbon processes. In Canada, our clean tech sector is growing faster than the overall economy, despite a decline in global market shares over the past few years.
0: On February 12th, there was a... Uh, a memorandum of understanding among the uh, agreements of the United, of the countries of the United States, Canada, and Mexico on uh, a cooperation agreement on climate change and uh, a collaboration agreement on climate change and energy and it 's all framed in the language of a North american energy uh, strategy and, uh, and and dealing with and this is something that even Trudeau was bringing up on the campaign trail about working in cooperation with the United States on a, on a joint uh, climate strategy. Do, do you see any hazards uh, presented in this uh, whole
1: setup?
2: Yeah, I mean, if they're talking about um, electrical cars and um, um, uh, standard moving towards uh, getting off um, oil-produced uh, cars, that kind of thing, that's not a problem. But what uh, it, it's interesting that uh, First of all, the government has said nothing. I mean, uh, they haven't told Canadians w- what's involved in this in uh, this uh, continental energy strategy. Uh, Jim Carr, who's uh, the, our um, natural resources minister, said we've they've made great strides. He said in that February the twelfth meeting in Winnipeg, we've made great strides towards the continental energy. What strides and for what purpose? Um, it's interesting that that the prime minister is going to Washington. Next week to meet with Obama, and, he, and he's going to be talking about a continental clean energy strategy there. And uh, the um, um, Catherine McKenna, the uh, Environment Minister, said, "Well, no, we can't uh, sign the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because we have a process in Canada. We have to consult with Canadians." That's good, but why aren't they consulting Canadians and being as transparent? On this continental energy strategy. What I think, it, if you look at the people who've been pushing a continental energy strategy, the Council on Foreign Relations, um, Hillary Clinton, um, they, they, they've been doing it. What they've been doing is they've been counting on Canada um, imports. Now, let, let me just, uh, for example, the Council of Foreign Relations, which is a New, uh, New York based organization very close to Washington. They called for a continental energy strategy with Canada and Mexico to, quote, strengthen the United States at home and enhance its influence abroad. And the two people who headed up that uh, the uh, uh, task force for the Council on Foreign Relations was, one, David Petraeus, former head of the CIA and former commander of the occupation forces in Iraq, the other one was Robert Zolik, the former president of the World Bank and the current chair of Goldman Sachs International Advisors. So this task force wants a cross-border energy regulation and policy integration. And, of course, when they talk about cross-border, it's usually the American way, and Canada and Mexico are supposed to adopt the American standard. So um, Hillary Clinton says that if she becomes um, president, she will immediately launch negotiations with Canada and Mexico to forge a North American climate compact. Why does she want one? Well, because she's got to ensure Americans' uh, security. Um, That's why they need a pact, and they get as much energy from Canada and Mexico as from the rest of the world combined. Um, So the question is, you you understand why Washington or American figures like that Want a continental energy strategy? What's in it for Canadians? What I'm concerned about is why would you go into uh, uh, a continent, a, a climate deal, with the United States when their main source of emissions is their biggest source is from coal-fired elect- electricity. Uh, that's that's a third of their emissions. We've we're, we're uh, uh, Ontario has totally eliminated coal-fired electricity. Alberta just promised in the fall to get rid of its coal-fired electricity by 2030. That isn't our problem. Our problem is the production for export to the United States of of oil and natural gas, and that is the biggest source of our emissions. So uh, what what I'm concerned about is that this continental deal is going to lock Canada into being diggers of um, uh, for, of uh, carbon fuels forever uh, and that we can't get a handle on our own emissions.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, kind of maybe a bit of a footnote here. I know that, uh, the I, as I understand it, the biggest single institutional uh, emitter of greenhouse gases is the U.S. Pentagon. So it makes me wonder if there's uh, a possible disconnect between uh, the Canadian energy interests and a, a, a continental energy uh, interest.
2: Yeah, I mean, why should we export uh, oil to the United States so they can keep their whole fleet of airplanes uh, up flying 24-7 in terms of their security? Boy, that it, that's it's way worse when you emit up in the higher atmosphere. Um, and, uh, you know, we shouldn't be involved in that. But the other thing is that Canadians... Are getting more and more concerned that dealing with climate, uh, dealing with the environmental impacts, and they've been lobbying their federal and provincial governments. Now, if you get a continental pact which takes out, uh, their, in, the, you know, takes out uh, the Canada's ability to affect its own emissions, then citizens in Canada will be totally di- disenfranchised in, in, in affecting the climate. Um, you know, you know american uh, washington official Washington often doesn't heed uh, the views of American citizens they don't care a whit what Canadians and Mexicans think uh, so I, i'm very concerned that this and we 've seen this with NAFTA and other what they call trade agreements is that it takes the power away from the people of the countries and gives them to corporations, and that is one of the main purposes of, of these kind of packs. So um, it's very important that Canadians should really demand of their federal Look, You know, Trudeau uh, ran on a, a policy of being open and transparent and consulting with Canadians. Put this on the table. Tell us about it. Consult us. Let's see what's in it, and let's see if it's going to benefit us or, or not.
0: Now, I mean, on that topic of, of transparency and, and the means by which this uh, collaboration is, is being engineered, I note that the Memorandum of Understanding in the text recalls previous initiatives to promote energy regional cooperation and integration, including the North American Energy Working Group, the Security and Prosperity Partnership of North America in 2005, and the agreement among the uh, the partner governments to uh, in energy, science, and technology – uh, done in uh, BC in July of 2007. Now, does that do, do, does that raise any red flags in your minds about uh, who might be benefiting from this
2: uh, this yes, collaboration? Absolutely. Oh, yes. Very good. Um, uh, it's this has been there's been a long um, aim of of uh, American oil interests and security interests to get control over Canadian energy resources and to lock and to um uh you know and and that's not good if Canada wants and is committed to moving to a low carbon society we cannot do that we cannot move there if we are America's gas tank forever uh and and that's what it's going to lock us into so um uh yes i'm uh i think we should be very wary of that there, there. I remember the Security and Prosperity Partnership. That's, I mean, they put these nice words on it. Basically, it's uh, it was, um, you know, American control of Canadian and Mexican um, energy. That's that's what it's about. Mm-hmm.
0: So, with this uh, this meeting of the, uh, the 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 Prime Minister with the Energy Ministers, uh, this uh, I guess as we speak. I I'm wondering uh, you know what you would be inclined to expect will come out of that.
2: Well, um, given you know, the jurisdictional I mean, I'm, not, differences. I'm not privy to what they're saying. There there is there is a debate from the news reports about whether uh Canada would have a minimum uh carbon tax. Uh I think a carbon tax would be very good as a as a start. It's not going to be nearly sufficient to get us to where we need to go, but it's, it's an important step. Uh, I hope that, um, the federal government, because, you know, the liberals were elected on this platform, that they would bring in a minimum, um, carbon tax that applies right across the country. I mean, we actually have four provinces that, um, where there is, uh, you know, a carbon tax or something like a carbon tax of different uh, sorts, British Columbia especially. Um, Alberta has, uh, bring in, has brought in a, a carbon tax, a fairly low carbon tax, although it's letting the sands increase its uh, emissions. Um, but Ontario and Quebec have um, um, a, a cap-and-trade system, which is also uh, the equivalent of carbon tax. So I would hope um, the main opposition has come from Saskatchewan, Brad Wall, Uh, who's been uh, firing up the uh, western regional grievance machine it's interesting that in order to defend the oil industry that when the oil industry was in power in Canada uh, through uh, uh, Stephen Harper, you know, based in Calgary there was no talk about western grievances, all those kind of things when the oil industry feels challenged here you get politicians like Brad Wall pulling out the Western regional thing to uh, to promote basically the interests of big oil and put this in Western regional terms.
0: Okay, well, um, on that note, uh, I think that uh, maybe we'll let you go now, but I just want to remind our listeners that uh, the name of the book is "After the Sands." Energy and Ecological Security for Canadians. The author is Gordon Laxer, and uh, he is the founding director and former head of Parkland Institute at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, and uh, also a prominent commentator. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Laxer. Very nice to
2: be here.
0: You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are now also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Many thanks to CKUW reporter Anna Sigrether for providing us with the audio from the North American Leaders press conference. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.